Okay, good afternoon everyone and welcome back to the Mythgard Institute uh, NetMoot. Uh, we are here today for the second lecture by uh, Professor Tom Shippey, Beowulf and History. Um, so I will uh, hand it over to Professor Shippey here. Now don't forget, as he is lecturing, please feel free to send me your questions because uh, I'll be gathering those together and uh, be relaying them through to Professor Shippey. Uh, one thing I will say, we're having, a, we're having some slight technical issues today, um, so I hope we'll be able to work through them. One consequence of this is that uh, the little picture of me, which is usually there, will not be. So I shall be the mystery voice from the shadows here today, but, uh, uh, but that's a, a minor thing. So anyway, uh, I will uh, hand it off to Professor Shippey. Of the poise. 
someone in a new world looking back at the old world. Uh, at the end of Beowulf, we feel that the transit is about to take place from the old world to the new one. And in Tolkien, again, we have at the end the passing of the third age and the coming of the fourth age and the dominion of men. So that is, as it were, foreseen at the end of Lord of the Rings, just as the future is foreseen at the end of Beowulf. And the last idea, uh, which I think Tolkien picked up from Beowulf, uh, is the idea of uh, mythical allegory. Not a point-for-point -point allegory, not an allegory of, of uh, current political events or anything like that, just a sense of greater significance within the story. That is one of the great appeals of Lord of the Rings, and I think it's an appeal in Beowulf as well. Well, that was my recap. Um, having said all that, let me turn to what we're talking about uh, this, this week, and re I'll remind you that this is based on Tolkien 1982, the posthumous publication Finn and Hengist. And in case I haven't said it before, Tolkien always said Hengist, not Hengist, because it's like Stonehenge and Dorhenge. It's uh, palatalized. He was very particular about that. But well then, uh, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, Finn and Hengist and discuss the historical legend in Beowulf. And the lecture will come in four parts. Um, for the first two, let me point this out. If there are two things that Tolkien was more interested in than he was in monsters, uh, they were, in the first place, names. Uh, you remember the rude person who said about the Silmarillion, it's a telephone directory in Elvish, yet. Well, that's a, a rude thing to say, but there's a kind of truth in it. There's a great deal of, there are a great deal of names in the, the Silmarillion, and uh, figuring out the names and figuring out how they relate to each other and figuring out the, the roots of the language is an important part of the whole book. So he was fascinated by names. Uh, I would say, from personal knowledge, that Tolkien actually was quite capable of reading a telephone directory with great interest, because he used to think about you know where names came from, and he thought about it all the time. So names were important to him. And the other thing, which is perhaps even more important uh, than monsters, and even more important than names, is lost tales. We know that his whole mythology started off with uh, what we now call the Book of Lost Tales. But Tolkien, of course, called it the Book of Lost Tales, too. He started off writing Lost Tales. So those are my first two sections in this lecture. One is Names in Beowulf, and the other is Lost Tales in Beowulf. And once I've gone through those uh, two sections, uh, I'll pause for questions. Then we have a third section, which is on, uh, really, Disasters in Beowulf, and then there'll be a pause for questions. And then the fourth section is what all the above meant to Tolkien. So those are our four sections. Names, Lost Tales, Disasters, and my attempt to work out the meaning of all the above for Tolkien. So I'll start now on the names in Beowulf. And I will try not to get too excited about this, because most of the things I'm saying here are things that I've worked out for myself. And it is notorious that something you've worked out for yourself always sounds much more convincing than something you've learned from other people. So I'll try not to, uh, to uh, get too obsessive about it. But um, if I could quote Tolkien here, Tolkien says, and this is uh, Finn and Hengist, page 62, he says, we've got to remember, talking about the, the scribes, the people who copied our one manuscript of Beowulf, he says, neither scribe A nor scribe B knew much about the old proper names, and either because of their own ignorance or because they represent the culmination of a process of forgetfulness and corruption, less reliance can be placed on the forms of proper names in Beowulf than on any other class of word. Well, 
that's absolutely correct, I think. The most recent editors of Beowulf uh, reckon there are 17 places in the prime where the scribes have just got a proper name wrong. And actually, I make it 23, but then perhaps I'm uh, uh, more gullible than they are. Uh, anyway, uh, the other side of the, of the scribes' apparent ignorance of names is the poet's amazing knowledge. Tolkien might have said his amazing appearance of knowledge, because in his 1936 lecture, he told us that all this you know, might be the result of art. It might be the result of the glamour of poesis. But I don't think it was. I think actually the poet just did know a great deal, which since then has been forgotten. Now I can put it this way. In the, uh, if you remember I, I had my little diagram of action peaks and relative troughs in the poem. In the action peaks, the, the, the three big fights, we have only eight characters at absolute top. And only five of them have names. Uh, the eight characters are, of course, Grendel, who has a name, Grendel's mother, who doesn't, the dragon, who doesn't, then there's Beowulf, and there's Weeglaf, and that's his sidekick, and then there's the thief, who actually steals the dragon's cup, who is not named. So we have six characters so far, only three of them named. And then, if we're going all the way, we can add the two corpses to that list. There's uh, the, the, the uh, uh, retainer of Beowulf, who is killed by Grendel, and we're told his name is Foncio, which means glove, very positive. And then we have the, uh, the retainer of Hrothgar, who is killed by Grendel's mother, and we're told his name is Asher. Okay, so we have eight characters, tops, five of them names. But if you look in the troughs, and you can see this if you look at the back of Ringler, where he has a long list of names, we have something like 70 personal names of individual people. Uh, and some of them, actually many of them, I can't see what they're there for. He just says them. The, the, I, I said long ago that the most redundant line in Beowulf comes when uh, Beowulf turns up after the attack by Grendel's mother uh, and asks uh, Hrothgar rather tactlessly, uh, one might say, if he's had a good night. And Hrothgar says very reasonably, no, he hasn't. It's been a terrible night. And Hrothgar then says, and I give it in Anglo-Saxon, it's so easy to understand. He says, dead is Asherah, human laugh is Ildra Brogor. And then he has a long uh, uh, praise of Asher. But he says, Asher is dead. Erman laughs, elder brother. Hey, the guy in the poem only functions as a, as a corpse. Do we need to know the name of his younger brother? Well, no, not that I can see. Anyway, I said this was the most redundant line in the poem. But my, my good friend, uh, the learned uh, Professor Bremer of Leiden University, said, actually, there's quite a lot of them, he said. Do we need to know about Kerridge? Do we need to know about Edgelar? Do we need to know about Bernstein? Do we need to know about Alfera? And of course, there's a whole string of them. We'll get mentioned once. And why? They're not doing anything. Well, so we have a lot of names which we don't seem to need. Um, but there's a funny thing here, which is the names are often rather strange. Um, something I'm going to explain later on, I'll just say it quickly now is that the, uh, the poem is set in Scandinavia in pre-Viking times. Uh, okay, so we have a name like uh, Alfera, who is mentioned at one point. Well, so what? It looks like an ordinary sort of name, but as it happens, it's never recorded in any other Anglo-Saxon text. We know of no other person called Alfera. And actually the poem says uh, that this guy Alfera is a Swede. That's all we know about, he's a Swede. Well, I found out about two weeks ago that uh, actually that name, Alvar, in its modern form, 
continues to be a popular name in Sweden, but nowhere else. So we have a Swedish character, and he's got a Swedish name. Um, another one, uh, Beowulf's father is called Edge Theo, and it looks like a standard name, Edge, Blade, Theo, Servant, Servant of the Blade, good name for a warrior. No one in Anglo-Saxon England, apart from Beowulf's father, is ever called that. But actually it occurs in Scandinavia. It's a Scandinavian name, where it would actually be rather different. It would be Egg Theo. Uh, perhaps the most striking of them, though there's a lot of competition here, is uh, you remember the guy that uh, Beowulf kills by bear hugging him. He is a Frank, a Frankish standard bearer. And Beowulf says with a good deal of satisfaction that the, the edge did not kill him. You know, he, he, he crushed his house of bones. He, he broke his ribs by bear hugging him. And he says the man's name was Day Raven. Now that's really not an Anglo-Saxon But it is a Frankish name. The first element, Dago in, in Frankish, is what? some of their kingdoms are called, like Dagobert. And actually, raven names are really popular in uh, in Frankish circles. So, famous scholars like Probanus Maurus, his name was Raven. The Saint Wolframan, his name was Raven. There are a lot of them. So, Day Raven is actually a Frankish name, and actually, it's recorded on the European continent, but it's not recorded in Anglo-Saxon England. So, what I'm saying is, the poet seems terribly well-informed. If he says someone is a Swede, he may well have a Swedish name and not an Anglo-Saxon name. If he says someone is a Frank, he will have a Frankish name, not an Anglo-Saxon name. Uh, so uh, the, the poet seems terribly well informed, and he seems to think we are too, because he often doesn't explain the thing. However, the scribes who wrote the poem, they were not well informed. They often did not recognize names. Now, look, here's a, here's a, a strange one. Look at PowerPoint 1. This is the start of the poem, and I'm going to read it through in the Anglo-Saxon, and you can follow it along, because the handwriting is actually really pretty clear once you get used to one or two uh, uh, letters, like the book. Um, it starts off, What way gardena, in yea dagum, theod kuninga, frumia frumon, hula apolingas, elen flemadon, oft shil shaving, shervena treatum, monium megtum, meru settle oftea, exeda, eo. Right. Well, uh, I'll translate that without looking at Ringler, but the, the critical sentence is, uh, he says, well, actually he says, he starts off by saying, we've heard of the fame and the power of the kings of the Spear Danes, and the answer is, uh, uh, sorry, uh, poet, we don't know anything about them at all. Never heard of them. What are you talking about? And then he says, often shield shaving took away the reed settles from troops of enemies from many tribes. Well, this is something that nobody else ever says. What do you mean, took away the mead settles? Actually, it's not recorded anywhere else, but it's not, easy, not hard to understand. A settle, even in modern English, is a bench with a back on it. And the thing about it is, unlike a chair, several people sit on it together. So actually, the mead settles are a place where you do collective drinking. And collective drinking, as is very obvious in the poem, and indeed, I have to say, in modern society as well, is uh, something which, which is there for, for masculine bonding. And in particular, it's for the bonding between the leader, the king, whatever he may be, and his supporters. Now, if you take away the reed settles, if you take away the reed settles, what you are doing is taking away people's political independence. You're saying, you don't do collective drinking anymore in your hall, you will do it in my hall. I am taking you over. 
So then we had too much trouble with taking away the moon samples. But then it says, and it says it, I repeat, look at the PowerPoint thing. It says uh, it takes it away from troops of enemies. That's lots of them. From many tribes. That's lots of them. We struck fear into the Earl, the warrior. Earl is singular. That's a terrible anticlimax. He does all these things to lots of people, and then he frightens one, one particular single person. All the editors of Bale have said straight away, that's wrong. And nearly all of them have helped the poet out by writing the letters A-S in after Aeol, which makes it plural. He's struck fear into the warriors. Yeah, but again, the reason I've got this, showed you the manuscript, is if you look at it, the word is absolutely in the middle of the page. There's no crumbly letters at the end. It's a, it's a, a straightforward word as you could hope to get. Why could the describe get that wrong? Especially because it's a common word. It's a common word in Anglo-Saxon, and it's a common word now. It's a common name now, for goodness sake. Um, well, there's one suggestion. Uh, tribal names are not declined the same way as ordinary words. So if that was a tribal name, the plural form would not be Aeolas, which is a standard ordinary noun. It would be Aeolus. But you'll see that the, uh, uh, the scribes did not have the custom of putting capital letters for proper names. You know, Shield hasn't got one, Shaving hasn't got one, Errol hasn't got one. If it was a proper name, and the, and the scribe did not recognize it, he might have seen Aeola, not realize it was a name, thought it was an ordinary noun, just meaning warrior, and realized that Aeola was actually the wrong, uh, the wrong grammatical form. So he corrected it to Aeola. But he was not correcting it right. Uh, if it was a tribal name, who would the tribe be? Well, actually, there's a tribe that fits very well. Uh, they're the tribe whom the Romans called the Heruli. The Romans actually often put an H on the front of barbarian names. The Heruli, as I shall call them, were actually famous for uh, three things. One is that even by the standards of barbarians, they were regarded as really barbarous. They were the most barbarous barbarians. Uh, they were people, if an old Errol, uh, if, sorry, if an, if an Errol male got to be old, his relatives kindly killed him to save him from the shame of dying in his bed. Even the other barbarians thought that was going a bit far. They were also apparently famous for their mastery of runes. They are mentioned seven times in very early runic inscriptions. And the last thing is this. Uh, classical historians note that they appear to have become subordinate to the Danes somewhere in the 6th century, somewhere in the early 6th century. So perhaps that's what the poet meant. In which case, it would make very good sense. Shield shaping subjugated many tribes, and in particular, he struck fear into the hearts of the most barbarous and warlike uh, uh, nation known in the north. So he didn't just terrify some puny collection of pacifists, he actually struck fear into the people of whom everybody else was afraid. So that makes a much better second sentence. But it shows, of course, that, um, that the scribes didn't recognize them because the errors had been long forgotten by the time they copied the manuscripts. And here's my point, really. If that is the case, this is a lost tale. It's a story we do not know. Okay, turning now to lost tales. Um, Here's a funny thing. The poet happily tells us about people like Urmudlaf, of whom we've never heard and whom we don't need to know about. But 
repeatedly omits to tell us uh, about central characters. Here's one. Who the heck, sorry, I shouldn't say rude things on, the, on, the, on screen, but uh, I, I'm tempted to say it because it, it's so remarkable. Who is Wiglaf? He's the big character of the last third of the poem. He takes over from Beowulf. Could you not perhaps tell us who he is? Beowulf seems to accept him as a kinswoman, but he still doesn't say, you know, in what way he's related to her. And actually, he doesn't look as if he's related to her. He's Wiglaf, son of Werkstam, of the Wymundings, and all the names begin with Wolf. But Beowulf doesn't begin with Wolf. Usually that's the way you see how people are related to each other. So, okay, Wiglaf, uh, important story, I dare say. Don't know what it is. Another one. There's a Danish character, Hrothulf, a very important character in the poem, uh, never introduced and never explained. We've actually figured out who he is uh, because he's a very uh, important and prominent character in Scandinavian legend. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell that from the poem. The poem just, just he comes on, he doesn't say anything, he doesn't do anything, he's very important. He's a kind of pivot character, but the poet is not bothered to explain who he is. There are other instances like this. Uh, uh, at one point, the poet contrasts uh, Heremod and Sigamon. Sigamund is the great hero of the Dragon Slayer. Heremod is somebody who seems to have had a good start in life and then gone to the bad. He joined the dark side in some way or other. Um, but again, we're not told who he is. I think myself it would make sense that if Heremod was the king of the Danes who had been chased off by the Danes and created the kind of lordless interregnum which was then filled by shield shaving. But that's just me saying that would fit. But the poet doesn't say anything about it. On the other hand, he seems to have been well remembered. When uh, Odin in Norse mythology needs to send someone down to hell in order to try to rescue Baldur. He picks one of his heroes from Valhalla, and the one he picks is Hermoda, which is Hermod. If they're the same person, then he was, a, he was somebody who was one of the leading champions of Valhalla, somebody equal to Sigurd, in fact. Um, but uh, if that's the case, we don't know anything about it from Beowulf. Well, uh, there are then all these uh, uh, unexplained cases, these lost tales, but uh, I think there's strong evidence now to suggest that the poet did know what he was talking about. And here is one of the striking uh, parts of it, which is archaeological. Um, the Danes call themselves the Schildings. Schilding in Old English is the same as Skjuldung in Old Norse. The Skjuldung are, are very famous in Danish legend, and uh, they're uh, assigned to a place that their stronghold is called Blaithra, or Blaithraborg. Uh, and it's generally agreed that Leithraborg is the little village now which is called Lyra, Gamla Lyra, not very far from Copenhagen. Uh, however, the whole legend of the Skildums uh, hanging out at uh, the citadel of Leithraborg was, till quite recently, regarded as a uh, pure legend, uh, no, no truth in it, no need to bother about it. Lyra, actually, I've been there, is a, is a tiny little village. Of no apparent importance, and that was what was accepted. Then, unfortunately, perhaps in a way, uh, the archaeologists got interested because a Dane wandered in and said, Oh, look, here's something I found near Lyra. So they uh, got their spades out and they went off and they started looking. And uh, the first thing they found was the remains of, of an enormous hall. And then they found the remains of another one. 
and then they found the remains of the third one. And in 2009, still digging valiantly away, they found three more. They've now found six enormous halls, a couple of them built on top of the earlier ones, in the immediate vicinity of the area. It was clearly a very important power center in pre-Viking and even in Viking times. Uh, the size of these halls actually is uh, something uh, quite surprising. But look at Beowulf. What does Beowulf say about the home of the shielding? It says that it occurs to Hrothgar to command a mighty meter hall to be built. This is PowerPoint 2. Richer and rarer than the race of men had ever seen on Earth before. And that's exactly what they found. Uh, the largest of these halls, and the most recent we found, is actually 10,000 square feet. That's a very big room. And if you consider the weight of the timber, the whole thing is timber framed with wooden shingles and so on, if you consider the weight of all that, it's really an enormous construction. Um, there are people who look at the, uh, the halls of the kings of uh, Northumberland in England and say, look, you know, this shows that really the barbarians could do pretty well. But the English halls look like a porter's lodge compared with the Danish one. These are the largest structures they've found in Scandinavia. So, okay. First of all, uh, the poet said that uh, first of all, the shielding uh, built the, the biggest meter hall that anybody ever heard about, and that's exactly what we found. So, this has caused some serious reconsideration. Um, and you feel actually the, uh, the people who were, were, were playing the story down should all now uh, uh, get the ketchup out put it on their hats and eat their hats, which, as you might have guessed, they've been reluctant to do. But there's a book about this called uh, Beowulf and Lyra, edited by John Niles. And John Niles, uh, very kindly, uh, asked me to write the afterword to it, because he knew that I would probably disagree with everybody else, which in fact was the case. I uh, did disagree with everybody else and said, no, what I think is that uh, we've got very good evidence here, and continuing to try to explain this away, it just doesn't work. Well, uh, I could say more, but I'll just say this. Every time we can check the Beowulf code on names, or people, or even things like meat laws, it turns out he was right. Often, of course, we can't check the story, or we don't know what the story is. We don't know about the ALA, if they were there. We don't know about Wigla. We don't know about Eshtel, Beowulf's father. Why was he exiled? Don't know. Uh, we don't know about uh, Wigla's father, Werkstan. It looks as if he changed sides in the bitter northern civil war which was going on, but we don't know why. Werkstan was definitely on the Swedish side. Wigla was equally definitely on the Yertish side, the enemies of the Swedes. Why they swapped over? Nothing to explain that. Ongentheo, the terrible old king of the Swedes, one of the most dramatic and frightening characters in the poem, something happened to his wife. It obviously annoyed him very, very much. But we don't know what it was. Um, if you look at uh, Ringler, pages 102 to 103, there's the story of the strange, what shall I call her, the wicked queen Mode Thrithu. Actually, I don't think she was called Mode Thrithu. I think she was called Fremu. We read, the, we read the name wrong, as usual. But if anybody can figure out what the story is there, please tell me, because I don't know what we're talking about. And perhaps the most striking one, Unfair and his brothers. How did he, no, I'm not saying how did he kill his brothers, but how come he manages to kill his brothers and retain a position of honor at the Shielding Court? I'd like to know the answer to that, but, and I can, I, 
that ideas actually fulfilling the story in. But my point is just that we don't know. If you look again at uh, at uh, PowerPoint three, uh, you can see uh, Tolkien in the homecoming of Berkhoff just putting in a kind of little allusion to this. Tidwell, who is the kind of sensible character in the dialogue, says to Torkel, who is the silly character in the dialogue, that's the battle for you, and no worse than, worse than wars you sing of when Froda fell and Finn was slain. Well, we know a little bit about Finn being slain, but we don't know anything very much about Froda, about the death of Froda. If you look at the course materials, I've done my best to sort out the various stories about Froda, but at the end, the truth is, I don't quite know what was going on. So, um, however, having said all that about these stories and, and many others, where well, we don't know what the, what the lost tale is, uh, there's just one occasion when we can check the poet's story, and it turns out, as I say, it's dead right. And this is the case of Higelach. Higelach, we discover, is the maternal uncle of Beowulf. He is uh, Beryl's uh, mother, which is like sister. Um, and it looks to me, if I was saying this is a psychological novel, it looks to me as if Beowulf is emotionally dependent on his uncle. He identifies himself as being one of the half companions of Higelac. He mentions Higelac ten times, ten times, uh, before uh, we're actually told who Higelac is. And also, Beowulf identifies himself as a retainer of Higelac before he actually gives his own name. He seems to be, well, as I say, emotionally dependent on him. Um, well, uh, the story which is mentioned repeatedly in the poem is that Higelac is killed in battle while raiding the Frisians. And you will see references to this, some of them quite long, uh, in Ringler, page 65, page 124, page 131, page 152. Well, this is the one event in the poem which we're actually able to confirm and to date. If we didn't know about this, we'd be completely stuck on the, on the date of the events which are described. But actually, uh, because Higelac went raiding down in the civilized south, his raid was actually recorded and remembered. And we have three accounts of it, independent of Beowulf and largely independent of each other. And they make it clear that he was killed raiding the Franks and raiding the Frisians somewhere around the year 525. 525, probably between 520 and 531, but actually later in that period rather than earlier. So one thing the poet tells us, and it's something he tells us about the most obscure of all the dynasties whom he talks about, the royal house of the people who have actually vanished from the political map, that actually turns out to be correct, true, and actually correct even in minor details. So, in this case, a lost tale is confirmed. But most of the time, we are left wondering what the tales are. Well, it's not surprising, I think, that uh, Tolkien set his mind to trying to recover what can be found of some of the lost tales. Well, I'll, I'll break now for any questions which have come up so far. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's see, uh, two questions to start with. One, uh, one on names, uh, a, spe a specific question. Um, uh, this is uh, Dave says, Tolkien spends about seven dense pages explaining the genealogical connection of Eotena to, to Jute. Grammar sloppy scribes make sense, but can you go over the other evidence? Yeah, um, uh, uh, 
gosh, this is a, this is a, 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 I can see why Tolkien gave it seven dense pages. Uh, the, the Jutes, in Old English, uh, they would have been called either the Aorta or the Aortan. Um, if they were the Aortan, that's a plural form, the genitive form, uh, if you want to say, of the Jutes, would be Aorta, Aort, Una, E-O-T, dash, E-N-A. However, the word for giant is very, very similar to this, and it is Aorten. Uh, and it's a regular noun, uh, which declines normally, and its genitive plural is just A. So the one genitive plural is E-O-T dash E-N-A, and the other is E-O-T-E-N dash A. But since they didn't put dashes in, you can see that they come out exactly the same. Uh, so I, I think, and Tolkien obviously thought so as well, that when the uh, the uh, uh, poem refers to Eotana Treoa, the faith of the, he means the faith of the Jutes, not the faith of the giants. But the uh, scribes may well have been more familiar with the word for giant than the word for Jute. Eota is like Eola, it's a name they didn't recognize. So uh, I'm not sure if that's, that's just answering the grammatical question. I'm not sure if I've grasped the whole of the question. Is there something else they would like to know? I will say I'll, he he can uh, let me know if there is more on that one. Um, I have a, a different, and this one is a this one is a very broad question uh, on the general subject of of lost tales. Um, this is uh, from Carla, I believe, who says Tolkien mentioned in his writings on Beowulf that the older myths or beliefs of the Anglo-Saxons or any cultural group are embedded in this type of writing. I'm interested in ways to look at the texts we have available in order to pull or tease out those stories and beliefs from the older oral culture. Is there a way to separate the writer's contemporary additions from those older stories? And if so, how do present day researchers sift this kind of text for the older pieces? Yeah. Well, um, uh, we, we don't have an awful lot of evidence. But uh, one of the most important ones, I guess, is uh, a poem uh, which is found in a completely different manuscript uh, called Weedseeth. And Weedseeth, which means the far-traveled one, uh, is largely a list of names. It it's really operates on the kind of uh, 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 X rule Y, is what it, what it frequently says. So it gives a list, as it were, of, of famous kings. Um, it seems to be what they sometimes call a thula. A thula is a, a mnemonic list, a list you know, which helps you to remember things, which of course is what uh, Treebeard likes. Treebeard actually sort of starts thinking and runs off with a little a little list of, uh, of uh, uh, the peoples of Middle-earth, and of course he then has to add hobbits in so that they can be remembered in future. Well, we see this kind of uh, uh, like a big example of, uh, of, of a list like that. Um, and really all you can do is to um, see if any of these names crop up elsewhere. And I would say that, think about Weedsy, about half of them do. And uh, of course, uh, uh, sometimes then you get a confirmation, sometimes you get a, uh, should we say, a surprising uh, uh, correlation, uh, sometimes you just can't figure anything out at all. Um, but it's really a case of uh, collecting what limited evidence you've got and trying to match it up. Uh, the best uh, guide to this, I think, it's a very old work, uh, but Tolkien obviously knew it well, was R.W. Chambers' edition of Weedseeth, 
which he also, I think the subtitle was something like A Study in Heroic Legend. Uh, and that's actually uh, still, I think, a very valuable book which brings together a great deal of information. And Chambers, like Tolkien, was a very good writer. He made it really interesting. So if you can get hold of a copy of that, uh, I would uh, yeah, have a look at some of the, or look at some of the names and see what can be figured out. Okay, great. I have several other questions, but m uh, most of them have to do with uh, the Finsburg fragment and some other sort of uh, specific questions, which are mostly uh, Finn and Hengist based. So uh, why don't we save them for a little bit? Okay. Uh, I'll carry on there. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I just mentioned the uh, Higelac, and uh, the, the last uh, raid of Higelac is obviously a famous disaster. Uh, okay, so now I'm going to talk about disasters. And what I'm saying here is that uh, after the Grendel fight, the tone of Beowulf changes markedly. In fact, you know, almost 180 degrees up to uh, the fight with Grendel. And after the fight with Grendel, it's been triumphant. And after Grendel has been defeated and the arms been nailed up, uh, they have the celebrations in Heron in King Hrothgar's Hall. And King Hrothgar's poet, called on to entertain the company, sings a song about the fight at Finsburg. The details of this, as you can see by looking at Finn and Hengist, are extremely confused. But we do have, rather oddly and unusually, a separate and partial account of it, which we call the Finsburg Fragment. Uh, the fragment was discovered uh, long ago, actually, uh, and printed uh, about the start of the 18th century, and it's been lost. We, we don't know where it is anymore. People have gone to look for it, but I suspect that the editor, George Hicks, transcribed it rather badly and then threw it away, and we wish he hadn't. Uh, nevertheless, we have got uh, a fragment which uh, largely confirms or corroborates uh, what is said in Beowulf. Um, I, I think I can only say three things about it. First, if you want Tolkien's real view about what was going on there, you could read the reconstruction uh, in Finn and Hengist, which is pages 159 to 62. And funnily enough, you will also find a very close uh, uh, account of it in a children's book, which was published in 1959. And it was by a lady called Jill Peyton Walsh. That's W-A-L-S-H. And uh, the, the book was called Hengist's Tale. Now, I looked her up, actually, and I discovered that, uh, that Ms. Walsh uh, was actually an undergraduate at Oxford. Um, I don't think she had a chance of listening to Tolkien's lectures on the Finsburg fragment, but she did have a chance, I think, of being told about it. And another funny thing I found out is that her maiden name before she was married was Bliss. So that's the name of the professor who edited uh, Finn and Hengist, A.J. Bliss, Alan Bliss. Now, I checked around and I discovered she wasn't his daughter. But I wondered if she'd perhaps been a niece and had been told by Alan Bliss about it and had decided to make it into a story. So actually, if you want to kind of run down on it, which is much easier to understand, uh, read uh, Jill Walsh's uh, Hengist tale. That's one thing I want to say. Uh, the second thing is this. Uh, really, Tolkien's view about this confused situation is uh, kind of a World War II situation. In World War II, many uh, nations were overrun by the Germans. And uh, what happened then was that uh, a lot of uh, people 
Czech fighter pilots, uh, French sailors, uh, escaped from Czechoslovakia or Poland or France or Norway and uh, formed the Free French Forces uh, in Britain. So we had the Free French, the Free Dutch, the Free Norwegians, all these people. Um, and they, of course, were there to fight against the Germans. Less uh, well known, because it's shameful and humiliating, is that, of course, a lot of people in the nations overrun by the Nazis uh, collaborated and joined in with the Nazis. Um, the term which has become standard is Quisling. They were Quislings. And the name comes actually from the Norwegian uh, uh, politician, Gudrun Quisling, who actually headed the Norwegian puppet government. Well, uh, the real hostility was very often not between, uh, shall we say, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the French and the Germans, or indeed the, the, the British and the Germans, real hostility was often between the free French and the collaborator French. Those were the, uh, the, the disputes which got really, really nasty. Uh, those were, as it were, family fights, which were always worse than any other kind of fight. And what Tolkien said was that uh, although on the surface the Finsburg episode, the Finsburg fight, looks like a fight between Danes and Frisians, he actually thought it was a fight between collaborator dukes and free dukes. The collaborator dukes were those who had acquiesced in the Danish takeover. In other words, the Danes had come along and taken away the Mead settles from Jutland. Uh, so they were, and then there were people who decided to collaborate with them, of whom perhaps Hengist was one. And then on the other side, you have the free Jews who have fled Jutland and gone to take refuge in a neighboring power, which is but naturally, the free Jews and the collaborator Jews can't stand each other. And when they are brought into something like contact at the court of Finn in Fusia, uh, uh, the trouble starts. Uh, and fighting breaks out, into which both the Danes on one side and the Frisians are drawn. But in essence, it's a fight between the free Jews and the collaborator Jews. Uh, and actually, that uh, comes over, I think. Have a look at PowerPoint 4. There's something here where I feel I've got a, got a correct ringlet. Uh, you should have uh, PowerPoint 4, and it consists of uh, four columns. If you look at column 2, uh, it seems to be a night attack on a hall, and the people inside the hall are going to defend the doors. So there they stride with swords and sheets, Sigafer and Erhan, while Ordla and Kutla went for the other door, and Hengist himself hurried behind them. Orlaf and Guthlaf, Guthlaf, note. Uh, then outside, there's people coming in to try to, to storm through the doors, and one of them is called Garl, and Guthera is trying to restrain Garl, and saying, don't go, don't go, hold back. Um, but Garl then says, and notice, what did he do? He asks, who held the door? And he gets a rather cheeky answer from Sigafred, which I think boils down to, my name's Sigafred, Sonny, what are you going to do about it? Uh, and Geralt then attacks and is killed. But you will see that uh, in line 60, uh, Ringler has said, uh, four flags din, and Guthera's son, Geralt, went down. He assumes that Guthera is the father of Geralt, and that's why he's restraining him from going into combat. If I may say so, in uh, heroic and epic uh, uh, circles, fathers don't restrain their sons from going into combat. 
actually in a page of the law. And in fact, in the manuscript, it doesn't say Gutherus son, it says Guthlops. But Guthlop is holding the door. He's on the inside. And the poem says, his son, Garrel, is on the outside. So we have, actually, a father-son contest. And I put it to you, isn't that why Garrel asked who was holding the door? He wondered whether it was his dad. In which case, I take it, he would have gone round to the other door. So that's why he asks it. Well, uh, Ringer has decided to uh, uh, change this to Guthera. I don't know quite why. And uh, Tolkien changed it too. He thought the name was wrong, and he thought it was Gethwolf. Because there's a character in Greedseek who's called Gethwolf, who he thought fitted better. But the manuscript says, actually, and we're to be sure about this, it's Guthlop. So it looks to me as if what we've got here is a fight between close relatives. We've got fathers and sons and uncles and nephews and all sorts, you know, facing off to each other. Well, uh, the third thing I wanted to say, though, is that, um, and this is perhaps the most important point, the Danes listening in Heorot uh, take this battle as a, a triumph for the Danes. Uh, but the figure whom the poet has picked out at start and finish is the Danish princess Hildeborg, who has been married to the king of the Frisians, Finn, obviously in a political marriage. Well, during the fighting, we know that she loses her brother, Nath. She loses her son, who's also killed. We don't know his name. Uh, and in the end, she loses her husband, too, Finn. And at the end, she's taken home to Denmark, really as a kind of piece of loot. So, the poet uh, in Heorot presents all this as a Danish triumph. But the poet of Beowulf points out that for Hildeborg, at least, it was not a triumph. It was a disaster. So, perhaps we should not take that song quite the way that it appears to be presented. And then the next thing that happens, as Hildeborg, as it were, goes off stage, the Danish uh, princess, another Danish queen walks forward, and her name is Wealthia. And she gives Beowulf a great talk, a gold ring to put round his neck, a gold collar. And immediately we are told that this has got a kind of disaster attached to it. Uh, Higelach, we're told that uh, it's given to Beowulf. Beowulf must have given it to Higelach. And actually, the poet then says, Higelach, the nephew of Swerton, lost that neck ring on his last campaign. And this is the first reference to the disaster in the background of Beowulf's own, uh, own people, uh, which is the king, Higelach, being killed while raiding in France. It says, the great neck ring fell afterward into Frankish hands. When warriors of less worth plundered the field where corpses of defeated yet held lifeless sway. So actually, that's a bad luck ring, isn't it? It's given to him as a thank you, as a sign of triumph, but its fate is not going to be a good one. Okay, so from that point on, even if you didn't know about it already, and I suspect many of the original audience didn't know, even if you didn't know about it already, you know that the man on whom Beowulf is emotionally dependent is doomed. He does not have a long life ahead of him. But let's go back to Wealthia. Her speech to Beowulf is, to my mind, the pivot of the time. And I remember years ago considering the various interpretations of Beowulf and deciding that this was the critical speech to look at. 
and I looked through it to see what I could make of it. And having studied it as closely as I could, I decided that this was unmistakable, unmistakable if you paid attention. And I invite you to read her speech and try to figure out what it is she's saying. What is she really saying? I have tried to approach this with a discipline which is now known as a pragmatic linguistics. And pragmatic linguistics, I would define it as the art of listening to what people don't say. Well, Rauthiel is saying something, but he's also, I think, not saying something. And if you pay attention, you can see what that is. Of course, she has to say it very carefully and tactfully. Well, you know, I'd really like you to look at the speech and see what you make of it and give it a fair trial, but I suppose I'm going to have to say what I think. And it seems to me that at this point, we expect we ought to be able to turn up, make the speech saying, jolly good, everything's fine, Phil Grendel, super, we're really pleased. And she does, of course, but she's got to, she says, to her, her husband, Drain the beacon, drink and be married, speak to the air, be liberal, give them lots of presents. Um, and then she says, and this is very dangerous when wives start saying things like this, I have been told that you intend to adopt this hero as your son. And then she says, Herod has been claimed. Enjoy good fortune as long as you And then the word, and instead this word is not in the poem, but every translator has put it in because it's so obviously necessary. And the word is, of course, but. Enjoy everything. Fine. But. Let's put it another way. Give everything away. Be liberal with your gifts. But do not give away the kingdom. Because that goes to our son. Both God, yours, and mine. Okay? Right. Well, she didn't say that, did she? Because, uh, because it would be terribly rude and uh, most unfortunate on a public uh, occasion. But it's clear that she says, leave the kingdom to your own children when death finally comes. Actually, a thing I noticed is that Wealthier, talking to a very old man, says three times, when you die. But actually, it starts off very vague. And then it gets a bit less vague. And finally, it becomes quite clear when you leave the world. If you look at the grammar of it, you can see she's subjunctive twice. And then she goes indicative because she's getting closer and closer to the point, you are going to die. What happens next? And the funny thing is that uh, she's the only person in the poem who regards Beowulf as a threat. Nobody else thought he was a threat. I don't think anybody took both God's jolly, um, I say, uh, I will treat you as a son. It wasn't taken seriously, but she takes it seriously. And the next thing is, uh, having said that uh, Beowulf, uh, in, in effect, that Beowulf is a danger to her son, she then turns around and says, uh, and then there's Hrothol, who is sitting there, not saying anything. And she says, I'm really sure that he'll look after the boys if you die first. I'm really sure that he will treat our children well, because we treated him well when he was a child. Look, uh, you don't need to say it twice, lady. Uh, if you say it twice, you're worried. I think the striking thing is she regards Beowulf as a threat, which it is, and she regards Rothoff as a threat. And it looks as if he is. There have already been two suggestions in the poem, in the poem and it's 
Ringler, page 55, and Ringler, page 63, that the Schildings are famous for treachery. But it hasn't happened yet. But it's going to. And the guy who's being the traitor uh, looks as if it's Rotol. If that story was well known, and I think it was, because it's actually in some ways a famous story, um, then Bayard's second speech is really sad. It's really sad. She says, you know, enjoy the treasure, Beowulf. Rogers have a great reputation. I'm really pleased to give you these gifts. Be good to my boys. Act in their interest. And then the word that's used in Anglo-Saxon, which uh, Ringer translates as triumphant hero, in Old English is Dream Hialdanda, dream holding one. But dream in Old English means happiness. Happiness holding one. Be good to my boys. But everybody knows, I think, it seems obvious to me, you can't hold happiness. It's one of those things that runs through your fingers. So actually, she is asking the impossible. And then she says, everyone here honors his comrades and loves his lord with a loyal heart. The nation is united and its noble things drink merrily and do as I bid them. Well, there have been various suggestions as to what this is. Some people say it's a kind of a prayer. Some people say it's a kind of a charm. Me, I think it's a kind of whistle in the dark couple of sentences. She's saying what she wishes to be true in the hope that it will become true. But everybody who knows the story knows it will not become true. So the poor woman, we out there, she is booked for a fate like that of Hildeborg. We've had one sad princess, and now we've got a sad queen. And she is the only person in Hayarov who kind of knows what's going to happen next. She hasn't figured it out yet, but she knows enough to be afraid. In the Scandinavian version of this, the person who becomes king after Hrothgar is Hrothol, who in Old Norse is Krol. Among his victims is uh, someone called Freyrecker, who looks as if he's the Hrethrich of uh, Beowulf, and he has an epithet attached to him, which is a very unfortunate one. They call him Freyrecker Nygvan Baugen, and that means the, the miserly person with rings. But Hrethrich then, or Freyrecker, did not take the advice given at the very start of the poem, which is to buy loyalty while your father is still alive. He seems not to have bought loyalty, and as a result, of course, he didn't get it. There's another thing. In the well-established story of King Rolf, the great Danish hero, he's killed by a guy called Gjörvater. Gjörvater, in Old English, is not aware of it. Yeah, Beowulf mentions him. When he goes back and reports to his uncle, he says, uh, here's some presents. They once belonged to the king, Thorogar, who didn't give them to his son. He doesn't say why he didn't give them to his son, but Thorogar seems then, and he was the son of the eldest brother of the three. Uh, he did not inherit. He has been disinherited. People who are disinherited, well, you know what's going to happen? He's going to come back. So what I'm saying is that the story seems to be that or Rolf kills his cousin Hrethrich or Freyrecker and is killed by his cousin Gjörvater or Gjörvater. But the Beowulf folk is the only one who knows that all these people are related and who knows also that they are all first paternal cousins. 
the Scandinavian stories, of which we have a dozen, know all kinds of things, but none of them actually have put all the bits together like that. Well, that seems to suggest our first uh, disaster was the Finsburg one, uh, our second disaster is the Higelac one, our third disaster is the Schildings who wipe each other out for the last man while fighting for the throne of Denmark. Well, okay, that's our kind of trough in between the Grendel fight and the Grendel's mother fight. And after that, the tone of the poem is never the same again. Because after that, uh, you know that uh, any triumph is likely not to last. There's a very moving scene, I think, uh, when Beowulf and Hrothgar uh, uh, say goodbye to each other. Beowulf, after I was only young, uh, says to Hrothgar uh, to that he knows that his uncle, Higelac, will support him in, in four years. And then he says, and this is a kind of, uh, I'm giving you a tip, Hrothgar, if your son Grethrich would like to go on a visit, why doesn't he come and visit us? And then he says a rather obscure proverb, which seems to say, you know, um, it can do him good. Which what it means surely is, get that boy out of here. Beowulf has tweaked what's going on and is saying, get Rethridge out of here to somewhere where he will find friends and allies. He's not safe here. Well, Beowulf then sees, I think, the shadow hanging over Hrothgar, and Hrothgar replies. And it's obvious that Rothgar sees the shadow hanging over Beowulf. But he says, and he says four things really, uh, this is PowerPoint 10, in times to come, if your king should get killed, and you should survive, then they won't find a better king than you, if, that is, you're prepared to take the job. And all those four things come about. The guy is killed, Beowulf does survive, uh, he is offered uh, the throne by the uh, widow of Higelac, and he refuses it and hands it over to his cousin instead. So actually, Hrothgar uh, can kind of predict the fate of Beowulf, and Beowulf can predict the fate of Hrothgar's son, Hrethrich, but neither man can see the shadow which hangs over themselves. So that's a very, again, a sad and ironic moment, I think. There's then yet another disaster, and this is in the return home sequence, the, the trough, as it were, between Grendel's mother and the dragon. When uh, Beowulf makes his report to, uh, to uh, uh, his uncle Higelac, he says, uh, incidentally, while I was at the Danish court, I observed the princess Freyawaru, and she is booked to uh, marry the Hjathabad prince uh, Ingel, and uh, this is supposed to uh, uh, settle the feud which has been going on for a long time, but, says Beryl, very, very strongly, it won't work. I don't think it's going to work. And actually, again, the story of Ingeld and, and, uh, and his, uh, his marriage is well known. It's a famous story in the North, and it didn't work. But actually, the only thing is, it was a bit worse than even Beryl thinks. Beryl thinks that trouble will start after the marriage. It actually starts at the marriage feast. So Beryl predicts what's going to happen but he's not quite dead right about it. It's even worse than he thinks. Well, um, note one thing. Frodo, the hero of Lord of the Rings, well, shall I say, the, the central character of Lord of the Rings, the ring bearer, is clearly called after Frodo. And you wonder why Tolkien did that. Why is Frodo 
think I can kind of explain that, but it, it's, it's quite a difficult one. But the point I'd make here is that, uh, that Tolkien thought that legends have a core of truth, but that truth is often obscure. Uh, it may go, you know, people will, will forget it or get things wrong. Uh, thus, well, you, you know that Bilbo actually survives in later legends as Mad Baggins, who disappears with a flash and reappears with boxes of gold and jewels. And we know what the truth is behind that story, and we know the story is, is wrong. But it has a core of truth. It's just been obscured because people get things wrong. And there's a good example of that, again, in the homecoming of Berthoff, where Torchow, a kind of silly character, says, uh, Ethelred will prove less easy prey than were John was, and I'll wager too, this Anlaf of Norway will ever, never equal Hengist or Horsa. Dead wrong Torchow. The Anlaf who won the battle actually becomes, actually is, uh, Olaf Tryggvason, the great uh, Norwegian king and hero. So actually, he did equal interest and Orsa. He founded Norway the same way they founded England. Well, um, that's four disasters I think we've got so far. Finn, Igalak, Shildings, and the Frodo Ingel disaster. And I just note that there's a fifth one waiting. At the end of the time, you know, the final sort of aftermath sequence, it's very clear that once Beowulf is dead, the Gareths are all for the chop. Uh, and uh, the years your PowerPoint's 13, 14, 15. The messenger who reports Beryl's death says that uh, we're going to be in trouble uh, when we, the Franks and Prussians hear about it. Our feud with them started um, uh, when King Higelac raided the coast, and, and we've heard about that before. And he goes on to say, and the Swedes, we're going to have trouble with them as well. And then he gives a long account of why they're going to have trouble with the Swedes. And then he goes on to say, that what's going to happen in future is uh, we won't be woken up by the heart that wakes warriors. And there's a, a, a mistake there, I think. Uh, the word is not all the one raven, it's but. What's going to wake them up is not uh, the heart that wakes warriors. It will be the one raven calling over corpses, croaking to the eagle what fine feeding he found this morning. So really, uh, it's, a, it's a, 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 a depressing account. And the poet actually says, um, what the actual words? Uh, he was not far wrong about words or about events. So that's actually saying everything that the guy, this guy says is going to come true. And that is the fifth disaster which is going to come out in the future. Okay, that's the end of my disaster section. Uh, any questions so far? Okay, let's see. We've got uh, a few about the Finsberg fragment I want to come back to. Um, uh, let's see. Um, when reading about uh, Sigafirth the Sejana Laod, uh, so was Sigafirth a Jute? It read that the Jutes were on both sides of the Finn and Dane conflict, so were, were loyalties divided? And I think you, you addressed that there a little bit. Sedju seems to be a name actually very parallel to Aerla. It means warriors. It looks like a you know a tribal name, but a, a, a tribal group that we know nothing about. Okay. Um, another one here is uh, some of the Beowulf inset stories have been said to be warnings by example, such as the story of the bad uh, the bad queen uh, Thrutho and the good king Hig, uh, or bad king Heramod and good king. Sigamund, uh, could could the Freswell story be such a warning by example? Any speculation what the warning was? 
Well, um, perhaps it, uh, it, one thing it does seem to say is that uh, these uh, diplomatic marriages don't work. You know, you trade off the princess and hope everything will be okay after that. It doesn't work. You just, you just got a sad princess on your hands. So uh, that might be, uh, that's, that certainly seems to be one of the things. But it also seems to suggest, you know, that one of the troubles is you can't turn these feuds off. People try to sort of settle them and, and stop them, but actually it doesn't work. The, uh, the instinct towards revenge is too strong. And that's clearly something that the poet regards with uh, dismay. Um, actually, uh, one on the uh, Raven, though. This is the uh, Finsburg fragment, Raven, not the, uh, the, the one yeah. there near the end of Beowulf. Um, uh, one of the students wants to know more about the dusky, dark brown raven circling around uh, in the mid-30s there in the lines in the Finsburg fragment. Uh, he says, Tolkien ignores it, and it seems very little, if anything, has been written about it so far as I can find. Is this just a general description of battle, given the symbolism of ravens throughout literature and mythology, is there a more metaphorical or allegorical significance for the raven? And why brown versus black? Um, actually, brown in the Old English often means shining. So actually it could be shiny black rather than brown. Um, and of course ravens aren't brown at all, they are indeed shiny black. Uh, but uh, they are among the, the traditional beasts of battle. These are the ones which come to, uh, to eat the carrion, to eat the dead who are left unburied. So it's wolves, eagles, and ravens are the standard uh, images here. And I think then the raven is regarded uh, as uh, an ominous bird, an ominous bird. So uh, there's also a certain uh, respect for them and interest in them, because of course they are among the birds that can imitate human speech. So, uh, and, and sometimes they're regarded as being lucky if you can retain them, if you can keep them. But what you might call wild raven, that's a, that's a bad sign. One of the Frankish names I remember is Kraman Yzindos, and that means companion of the raven. And of course, if you're the companion of the raven, that means you're somebody who kills people and leaves their bodies to be... That means you're the raven's friend. The ravens like you if you provide them with carrion. Right, kind of like Gandalf Stormcrow? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Right. Good, but I have uh, actually I have one more question here about Finn and, Heng and Hengist, but it's uh, it's a very long question, which I think would probably translate better. Maybe I'll save it for the Friday session when I can put it up on screen so that everyone can follow along a little bit better. I think it refers in detail to several different lines, um, so I think I might save that one. So I've got a, a couple others here that just came in. Um, uh, Kirsten says, I wondered if you thought that the Beowulf poet, being a Christian, is showing through these disasters criticism of the revenge cycle so prevalent in his source materials, despite his affinity for the heroic epic, or is this an overly modern reading? No, I think that's, that's correct. And I think that actually even under the heroic epic, there were people who realized that uh, you know, continuous revenge uh, was not going to work. Uh, but uh, yes, I think that, uh, that uh, this is very much part of the poet's uh, 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 what you say, moral. Um, he doesn't like the, the kind of continuous revenge cycle, and he also is, uh, he, I think he's particularly hostile uh, to the idea of warfare between relations, um, kin strife, as, uh, as Tolkien calls it. Uh, he he sa several times says clearly that uh, families ought to stick together, and of course he's quite right. The trouble is, uh, where, where the 
stick together is usually when there's something to inherit. That's why paternal cousins are dangerous and maternal cousins aren't. So yes, I think I think he did. Uh, did he was looking back at what he thought was a kind of hopeless situation. Okay, good. Well, I think you can uh, uh, go on to your conclusion, and we'll see if there are any last questions here that uh, come in for the end. Okay. I, I'm over time, so I'm going to do the last section uh, quickly. Uh, how did this vision of history affect Tolkien? Well, it's been said that Tolkien's dominating theme in his fiction is a sense of loss. At the end of Lord of the Rings, Ents, Elves, Hobbits, Malons, Beauty, Middle-earth, they're all going to go. Um, one of the losses that Tolkien felt very personally was the loss of native English tradition. He felt that had been wiped out by the Norman conquest. Uh, and he tried, I think, to recover what he could and to fill a gap of which he was very conscious. He knew there must have been Anglo-Saxon fairy tales, but none survived. So he wrote one, and that's the story which is called Selig Spell, which you've never been able to read, but it seems to me characteristically he did that. He knew there must have been Anglo-Saxon historical legend about the coming to England. Um, we haven't developed legend about that, uh, but unfortunately it's not English, it's Welsh. It's the King Arthur story. So we have the story of the invasion of, of Britain by the Anglos and Saxons, uh, but it's told by the other side. And that, I think, Tolkien thought that was very unfortunate. He would like to know about uh, uh, the story from the English side, as it were, from Hengist's uh, point of view. Uh, well, there's a gap. Uh, a gap in historical legend. And Tolkien wanted, I think, to write into the gap. And in this, a critical figure was Hengist. Tolkien accepted that the Hengist of Finsburg was the same as the Hengist of early English history. Um, he thought uh, that the Beowulf poet gave vital insight, uh, not just into the, the, the arising of Denmark, as he said in his 1936 lecture, it also gave vital insight into the origins of England. And my suggestion is, following up on Tolkien, that in brief, that England was founded by the dispossessed. That we have, I think, good evidence now, archaeological evidence, for something major bad happening in Scandinavia in, say, the years 530, 540, just after the death of Higelac. We have uh, the archaeologists find halls which have been deliberately smashed. People have been taking the mead settles away, haven't they? Um, uh, the aristocracy starts moving uphill and building hill forts, which they hadn't done before. That suggests internal disturbance. The gold dries up. We have lots of archaeological discoveries of gold in earlier periods when Scandinavia seems to be in a golden age, and then it stops. It's choked off somehow. And there's also a kind of break in continuity. Places which are important at one time cease suddenly to be important. Some people call this the migration period crisis. The migration period crisis. Beowulf, I think, is looking back at the migration period crisis. And the result of the crisis was a lot of emigration. Hengist, you might say, a jute, I think, now hated by his own people as a traitor and not trusted by the Danes, he becomes what in World War II would have been a displaced person. So he gathers his few surviving friends and goes up and invades Kent. Um, meanwhile, Grethwich's brother, Grothman, mentioned in Beowulf and nowhere else, um, is the 
name is not found anywhere else in uh, Old English except in the royal family uh, of East Anglia, where he's mentioned as a kind of early ancestor. Perhaps Ruthman gathered together what relatives and friends he could find, and he emigrated to East Anglia. And my suggestion, which I think I made last week, is that some of the Yats fleeing from the Swedes, who were obviously going to come down on them like a hammer, they fled to Yorkshire. So you've got three groups of Scandinavians going to Kent, going to East Anglia, going to Yorkshire. And these are, as I say, the dispossessed. Well, um, Tolkien, I think, thought something like that and wanted to fill the gap in historical legend. And he used Hengist as his example of it. But he also wanted to fill the gap in fairy tale. And here, what you should look at is the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2, Book of Lost Tales 2, and see pages 289 to 94, when Christopher Tolkien gives an account of what was obviously a complicated gestation. But the gist of it was that Tolkien wanted to think that the whole history of the elves had been given to an Anglo-Saxon. And that Anglo-Saxon was a guy called Otto, or an elvish Ariol, and he was an elf friend, and he was the father of Hendrist, and also the father of Orsa, and also the father of Theonda, another figure in heroic legend. And in Tolkien's view, Hengist was associated with Warwick, and Tolkien had lived for a while in Warwickshire. Horsa was associated with Oxford, which of course also he lived in, and Theonda was associated with the village of Great Haywood in Staffordshire, which is where Tolkien started writing the Book of Lost Tales. So that the, uh, the Hengist family, you might say, uh, were related to the whole uh, discovery of Elvish story. Um, uh, the result of that is, and this is a Book of Lost Tales, page 290, Tolkien says rather aggressively, thus it is that through Ariel and his sons, that's Otto and his sons, the father of Hengist, um, the Engler, that is the English, have the true tradition of the fairies, of whom the Irish and the Welsh tell garbled things. Well, I'm sorry, but that's just jealousy. Uh, Tolkien was jealous of the better recorded Irish and Welsh fairy tale traditions, and he wanted to say that the English had got a better tradition because it was passed on to them by the elves themselves, and it came through the family of Hengist. Um, this theory is not at all plausible, and then he abandoned it later. But I think that Tolkien had to have some kind of theory about how things came to be known. And Hengist, you might say, was this kind of conduit for the way in which uh, traditions were passed on. Um, Hengist gave him a thread to link real European history with invented English mythology. But Tolkien didn't really keep history and mythology apart. The two actually uh, you know, blend into each other. There's a critical scene, I think, near the end of Lord of the Rings. The hobbits have moved out of their kind of little introspective shire into a world where they're continually confronted with history, which about which they knew nothing, and then they and, and mythology too. And then they come back to the Shire, good old Shire, and Mary says, um, coming back to the Shire, it seems almost like a dream that has slowly faded. And Frodo says, not to me. To me it feels more like falling asleep again. And I think Tolkien is suggesting that the Shire and contemporary England and the contemporary world they're all, they've all had a kind of sleep, a kind of oblivion, a kind of forgetting. And actually, Frodo finds himself returning to them. So, one
one of the things that folks like Gerald and Kinsgrove could do uh, was wake everybody up. Wake them up to their own history, to their own origins, to their own mythology. And my final point is that to Tolkien, this was not just an academic matter, it was deeply personal. Okay, thanks very much. Great. Well, uh, and I would uh, actually, there are two other questions that have come in, which I think uh, we have uh, we have time for if you do. Um, uh, Dave asks a very interesting question. Um, when you were talking about the displaced people who uh, who all come in and end up there um, in England, he says, "What about the people in England that the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes displaced, such as the Celts? Why doesn't Tolkien focus as much on the loss of that culture?" Well, because uh, he regarded himself as English, and uh, you know uh, the Celtic culture, you know, he knew about it. He uh, was uh, you know, very, very attracted by Welsh. He knew quite a lot about Irish as well, but he felt that wasn't his business. That was somebody else's business. So, uh, um, um, and also the Celts, uh, their uh, traditions and their mythology had survived much better. So they didn't need a hand really. That was the poor old English who had had their uh, their history scrubbed out. So uh, that, I think, is the answer to that. Okay, great. Uh, Sandra asks, uh, what you think of uh, Michael Drought's noting of the Gothic names for the ancestors of the Rohirrim given in the appendices? How do you see the the, uh, the Goths fitting in there? Yeah. Well, Tolkien obviously was very uh, very <laughs> very fond of the Goths, uh, and uh, one of the things though, which I, I notice is that although uh, those names are in Gothic form. Sometimes you cannot tell the difference between Gothic and very early English. And I think Tolkien thought, and I think it's probably true, that uh, way back when, uh, the Goths and the ancestral English were kind of pretty close to each other and actually spoke pretty much the same language. And then uh, the Goths wandered off in one direction and the English wandered off in the other. So they ended up split. But, uh, but there's actually a, a kind of strong connection. I'm trying to remember, I think there's one character there who is called uh, Machwini, which means horse friend. And that's good Gothic, but it's actually good Northumbrian too. So uh, this was actually not just Tolkien's idea. William Morris um, wrote a string of romances in which he rather cunningly, uh, he's obviously talking about the Goths, but he gives all of them uh, names which could be English as well. So I think actually the feeling is that the, the Goths are very nearly English, and the Goths, you might say, were the English um, at an earlier stage. Uh, their language is like English, but older than our actual records of English. So there's a, there's a, a strong sort of family feeling there. Great, great. Well, uh, the uh, the ending of your lecture uh, today was the perfect springboard into next week. Actually, we're going to spend the majority of our time next week in uh, that uh, Alfwina of England uh, chapter, looking at looking at that and looking at uh, basically Tolkien's Tolkien's writings and how you know I, I want to be spending some time looking in detail at how Tolkien is really dealing with this and what uh, what his uh, attempt to his early attempt to to create the mythology. Um, are really looking like here. So, um, so that's uh, that is it. That is the perfect transition into next week. So, um, good. Well, uh, so for everyone in the class, uh, please remember to send in any questions that you have uh, that you would like that you would like Professor Shippy to address on Friday, 
and we'll do that. And of course, uh, we also look forward to discussion sections on Wednesday as we uh, get a chance to, to go through some of this in more detail together. Uh, I'd like to thank Professor Shippey again for a wonderful lecture, and we look forward to question and answers on Friday. Okay. Thanks very much, uh, uh, Corey. And uh, I, I have a couple of things I'm going to start off with because they, they struck my mind when I was listening to the question. But we'll, we'll save that for Friday, uh, Friday afternoon. Excellent. Perfect. Okay. Thanks very much, everyone.